0: All right, everybody, and welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast, or should I say the Effort Over Everything podcast. We have done a simple brand change, and really the reason for it is this. Years ago, we started the Business of Fitness podcast as the intent to help gym owners and coaches to share best practices, to dive into business. But over the last couple of years, man, we're at 150 episodes or so. I feel like I've personally said everything that I need to say specifically about the business of fitness. You can go back in all these episodes with a ton of great information, but now by rebranding or shifting to this idea of effort over everything, it allows me to talk to people about the business of fitness. Of course, that's my passion. That's our business that we're in, but it also opens the doors for me to have conversations about things outside of just the business side of fitness. So you could expect, you could expect conversations like we're having today with MDV, our chief fitness officer here at MC Fit. Is he in the business of fitness? Of course. But he also then shares a ton of stuff about ocean lifeguarding, which I was particularly interested in talking a little bit about his uh, stint as a Spanish instructor and just additional life lessons learned through wrestling and just things outside of the gym itself. In the future, we're going to have business episodes. We might be talking about grilling. But we're always going to kind of pull it back to lessons learned, mindset, and how they can incorporate from a leadership perspective. That's what I'm fired up about, and I hope you guys enjoy these episodes. Let's keep it going. Look back on all these different episodes if you're looking specifically for coaching and business-related, but we're going to have a lot of fun content coming up. Now, let's dive into a great episode with Mr. MDV. Let's go. <laughs> All right, so, MDV, you know, we're pivoting the business of fitness podcast, this idea of effort over everything. Both of us, obviously, oh. we're, uh, we're twinsies <laughs> right now. We're rocking the effort shirt um, if you're watching this online. But um, embarrassing. We both
1: showed up in the same outfit.
0: Dude, we're totally in the same outfit. At least my background's white and yours is black. Otherwise, yeah. we'd really be matching. <laughs> um, and so, we were talking the other day and we were talking about your lifeguard background. I'm really, yeah. really fascinated because you're really, you're a really interesting guy with your background and this idea of you know putting in the effort. And we could go into all what that means to each one of us and whatnot. But I think what's really what I'm really want to start with is that I go to the ocean, I'm with my kids, and I get overwhelmed. I mm. get overwhelmed just being on the beach because I feel like, okay, I'm a moderately good swimmer but there's all these people out here and it's just like, man, it's a lot. You know, you got the waves that are unpredictable. You have the people that are unpredictable. You have a, a vast kind of like ocean. It's not like it's a very specific area, like <laughs> a swimming pool. You know, like a swimming yeah. pool. Hey dude, you got, you got zone a, you know, <laughs> and so you're, you're lifeguarding, um, throughout high school and even into college. Right. Yep. And yeah. that's during the summers. Is that, is that, is that how it went down?
1: Yeah. I started. I started lifeguarding as a senior in college and I lifeguarded all the way through college and then three or four years after college. So I did eight summers as an ocean lifeguard on the South shore of Long Island uh, at a beach called Point Lookout, which is a barrier Island beach, which gets really significant uh, water at certain times of the year. You know, in particular, as you get to the late summer, into like uh, August and starting of hurricane season in September, it gets really, really hectic. And, you know, there was also a bunch of days in those summers where it was just for some reason or another, whether it was a a pressure swell or wind swell or storm or whatever you showed up and it was on. And uh, it was a great job, man. I love being an ocean lifeguard.
0: So, so I want to dive into it because again, I go, let's just say Santa Cruz or Southern California, yeah. or maybe you're in Hawaii or whatever. And I'm with the kids and it's just, you know, you know, I'm, I'm trying to teach them some fundamentals, right? Like yeah. never turn your back on the ocean and whatever, but there's just so much going on. I can't imagine what it feels like to be, um, a lifeguard in that situation because there's a lot of things that are outside of your control. And so you, and there's some things that are in your control, yeah, obviously, for sure. but one of the things you touched base on the other day when you were, you and I were talking is, is, um, this concept of how like, the leader, uh, how the way they felt kind of dispersed the team. But before yeah. we get even into that, I want to go <laughs> back to this idea of stripping the stand. Because you okay. said that to me. I was like, dude, what is stripping the stand?
1: Because it's just like, uh, I don't know, man. I, I couldn't stop thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, you, you, you got all wrapped around the axle about stripping the stand. Which is a cool uh, – when it's going down, when it's it, happening, when I say strip the stand, strip that the stand. means – that's we, that means we have every lifeguard in the water on a rescue. So let me, let me give you some context. Yes, the, I be- hear. The, the beach that I worked at was a, for the most part, uh, a beach that had some jetties, which are like rock, uh, structures that are going out into the ocean that help prevent any sort of land erosion. Um, so there was like, jetties all down the beach, every like hundred yards or so, uh, maybe sometimes a little bit longer, you had a jetty. And then we had these really amazing soft sand beaches. I mean, not like a lot of stones or shells. It was like yellow, white sand. Um, and we really did have the privilege of lifeguarding a really beautiful strip of beach. The days when you showed up and it was on, um, I definitely want to talk about what it's like to sit with different types of leaders through those days. But the thing that we're talking about with stripping the stand. That means that there's a really hectic situation. You have multiple people in the water and you've moved every lifeguard into the rescue. And then eventually you're the last person on the stand with the radio. And you, you call in that you're stripping the stand and you're in the water. So now the the beach is largely unguarded and you have all of these individuals performing uh, a multiple victim rescue. It's a really, it's a crazy and hectic scenario because you never want to leave the beach unguarded. Um, and before you get to that point, if you get to that point, there's probably some stuff that went wrong along the way. But if you get to that point, sometimes it's unavoidable, you try to get everybody else as close to shore as possible. But then you, you got to go, man, because you don't go, somebody's going to drown. And I was telling you this last time, we were really fortunate to never have a drowning on duty. Um, but I've been in many scenarios where we strip the stand. And it it's, it's the only thing that I can say is like, it's on. Like you are in a complete adrenaline dump of you are moving as fast as you can to go save somebody's life. And so you said that the strip in the stand happens, but like a few
0: things have to go not wrong, but just like, there's a few factors. So like, I can't, and, and, and for anybody listening, I think this is really interesting because yeah. you have these lifeguard stands. Let's just say like, I don't know what are they a couple hundred yards apart from each other traditionally. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I want to get into the training that you did um, with that, because I think that kind of leads into this idea of like sure. your background and putting the work, but let's talk about this for a minute. You're, you're in this lifeguard stand. It's like, let's just say, I don't know, 20 feet off the ground, whatever it is. And what are you guys looking for? Because when I look for it, it's just so many bobbleheads. Like, what do you see that, that says, hey, man, this is probably not the right person in the right place?
1: Yeah. It, that's a really interesting question because you learn how to scan the water, scan the crowd, look for uh, situations that might be Uh, oncoming that haven't happened yet, or you see somebody who is doing something that looks like they might not be able to do. And, you know, I should clarify also, you know, in California, they have these um, big kind of lifeguard stands that have uh, like crow's nests where you like walk around and then you're in the building and then you're out of the building. Where we sat were stands that were constructed out of, wood that were built up and we had a bench seating that sat either two, three or four guards. So smaller stand on a smaller beach had two guards, bigger stand has either three or four, but when you're, you're literally sitting in the chair, watching the water and the cool part about the stands that we sat in was they were huge and burly, but we could move them. So as the tides moved, Uh we could get the team to move the chair closer to the water or further back away as the tide came back up. So it gave us an advantage of, yeah, it was really, it was, it was a great method of being closer to the scene that you potentially had to go into. So to answer your question more directly, essentially what you're doing is you're sitting there and we only sat for one hour increments at a time because after a while, similar to coaching, your eye starts to get used to movement, right? Your eye just starts to get lazy so we always just sat one hour on one hour off and when you're sitting there for an hour you're actively just scanning across the crowd you're looking for patterns you're looking to see people and it's very interesting because you do at some point have a like a knowledge of hey i didn't see i saw this person and now they're gone or I see this thing happening over here and now I got to pull some of my attention over here and now I'm going to active scan. I'm going to come back over here. So you you do start to recognize, like I said, patterns or groups of people or things or, or places or things like stuff that might start to happen. Your eye naturally starts to gravitate towards this.
0: Yeah, It's pretty crazy the parallels between coaching and lifeguarding in a sense, right? You say, hey, you got to keep it for an hour. You're kind of looking over it. And just like, as you get more reps, like in the beginning, so you you did eight summers I and mean, that's, that's quite yeah. a bit. And it wasn't like you were like young doing this. I mean, you were, you were more mature, right? And so you were in a position where you could actually know what you were doing, like in, in high school and, and college, right. Or in college, I should say.
1: Yeah. And- I started off in high school and then worked through college and then years after college. And my, I definitely got better and matured and became a different guard as I went on, but. Um, yeah, you definitely have a, you develop an eye and there's certain people who have better eyes, who can see things that are going to happen further in advance or recognize that there's something that could go wrong based on how this person is entering the water. A lot of, a lot of what we dealt with was we were a very preventative crew. We didn't want to have really terrible situations happen. We had the luxury of being able to go out and get people before this the really hairy situations occurred. But some some lifeguard crews out there can't do that because they have so many people that they have to deal with that they they kind of have to let people just soak for a while and only go on the rescues that are like really, 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 really really legit rescues. That's much scarier. We went on rescues that were, hey, this is this is going to be a problem right now, or it is a problem. But before it gets to be a real fucking problem, let's go and get this person. And yeah. so do you
0: actually, when you watch someone enter the water, like as someone who's seen a lot of reps, yeah. you just tell, it's like yes. being in the gym and you can just tell like, hey man, this person will look very comfortable.
1: Yes, 100%. You, and there are certain things that you would watch for and you would know, like you see somebody walking to the water or walking into the water and there used to be a joke because if it was towards the end of the day, some of the crew would have their sweats on because it gets really cold in the stand. Although it's still hot outside, you're in the sun all day. The wind starts to pick up. It blows some mist or some uh, vapor off the water and you're freezing in the stand. So towards the end of the day, some of the crew starts to like get bundled up. You would see somebody and they'd be behaving a certain way and you go take all your sweats off. It's about (laughs) to be on. Like you just knew that you were going to have to go into the water and rescue this poor fellow. But, um, Oh
0: man. And so when you guys were training for this, I mean, uh, you know, you've been dedicated to fitness for a long time. Yeah. We love, you know, everything that you're doing with us at NC Fit and our new everything we're doing. I, I'm just really excited about. But talking about your your back in the day, you know, you wrestled mm. in high school, which is notoriously known as like just grind workouts. I mean, they they just they're just getting after it, especially in high school. You know, back then, football. I remember my football workouts; they were fine, right? But the wrestlers were mm. always known. You know, I just remember watching them. One of my buddies is a wrestler, and he, oh, I, I couldn't believe it sometimes. He'd wear garbage bags and just oh, yeah. run. To drop weight. Dude, to drop weight. And I would just be watching him and be like that dedication, that commitment, he'd show up and he'd eat like a you know bite of peanut butter, and that's all he would have. <laughs> and, and and so coming off that dedication there and then leading into the lifeguard. Yeah, what type of training are we talking about? Because it's a really beautiful blend of this idea of like strength and conditioning, because yeah. you have to sprint to the water. They need to be able to swim, but then you also kind of need to be able to pick this person up or do something with them. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You, you need to be pretty athletic to be uh, a lifeguard. Uh, you need to have a certain amount of water skill and acumen and understanding about how to move through and swimming through ocean water is very different from swimming through pool water or lake water. It's a whole nother ball game when you're dealing with entering water that is very active and if it's a big day and it's coming on in uh in sets of four or five six waves at a time and if you're dealing with rip currents or tides there's a whole way of thinking about how and when you go in and eventually and this is kind of a sidebar eventually at some point in my lifeguard career I I took my fins on every single rescue that I went on every single rescue I went on I went with fins because the 10 seconds that it took me to get my, to grab my fins, sprint to the water's edge, throw my fins on and then get into the water. I made up tenfold in getting to the victim and having more powerful swimming and staying with the victim with fins on than if I didn't have fins. And that's, that is something that you see now with more and more lifeguard cruises, the adoption of, of swim fins. Um, anyway, that's a little bit of a sidebar, but getting back to like Wrestling and going through that kind of training, um, I was not the best wrestler in the world. You know, I I was undersized in high school. I'm not a big man at all right now either. I'm like 165, 5'8. eight, um, but I was small in high school. I was like 103 pounds.
0: 103.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh I was, my I was, gosh! I was a little guy, and there was two or three weight classes below me. There was 96 and 92, and um, I I think my freshman year I wrestled 96. And then my sophomore year I wrestled 103, my junior year I wrestled 112. And after my junior year, I, I actually quit I quit wrestling and it's a huge re- regret of mine. Um, I was not a great wrestler, uh, but I I put up with the training as much as I could at the time and I just got so beat up by it mentally that I kind of I gave up on it easy and um, I think it's one of the things that's really motivated me from that day to really be committed and put myself through grueling, tough workouts and challenging things because I'm not proud of that moment at all. I I simply gave up because it was too hard. I wasn't having success. I was getting pinned a lot. Uh, I had a couple of wins here and there, but like I was just in a really tough weight class based on the people I was wrestling with, and it got to me. It's, and it's, I rem- oh, No, ahead. keep going.
0: No, I was just going to say, it's funny how like life has this weird way of like getting perspective as you get older. So like, for example, you said that you walked into the coach's office, right? And at that yeah. moment when you said, Hey man, I'm, I'm done at that moment, right? Did you already know you made a mistake when you did it?
1: I was scared fucking shitless to go tell my coach that I wanted to quit. I remember being scared up until... Up until the moment I walked out and I felt badly even after I had walked out that I had given up on this. It was, it's really not something I'm, I mean, I'm not proud of it at all. It definitely helped shape me for some other stuff because I know I didn't want to feel that. Um, And I've not like, this doesn't, I'm not saying this to sound boastful. I'm not bad at a lot of things. And it, it is, it's, that's really good for me in some ways but it was bad for me and others because I struggled so much with wrestling and not being good at it that I, I pushed myself as far as I could. And then I just couldn't see myself getting better. And I gave up on it as opposed to willing myself through it and getting to the other side, whether or not I was ultimately successful, I gave up early in it. Um, And it's one of the things right now with my jujitsu practice that I'm so fucking committed to being I want to succeed in this and not necessarily succeed in a way that like, I'm amazing and winning competitions or whatever, but I just wanna, I don't wanna quit. I don't wanna get to the point where I get tapped too many times, or, you know, I start to feel like people are moving ahead of me. I can't let this slip through my fingers a second time.
0: So do you think you're like, you just, your mindset shifted though? So like, let's, let's just take me, right? At CrossFit games or high school, college, whatever you're playing something you want to be the best or you want to do well and whatnot. But now as you get older, you're maturing and you're getting to jujitsu, like I'm going to compete in jujitsu a few times a year. Mm. Um, I don't have the same type of pressure on myself that I would maybe put on myself with competing professionally in CrossFit. But back to your point about trying to make progress, like I don't know if I care as much about getting beat. I care that I'm staying committed and that I'm learning and that I'm continuing to get better in jujitsu just because my frame... I want to be doing it for the next 50 years. You know, it's just a different mindset than maybe when you were in high school. You think that's what it is? It
1: could be. Uh, I also didn't have a lot of physical prowess and strength. I was small. I was was 103 pounds, 112 pounds. I was wrestling (laughs) against guys who were more powerful than me, stronger than me, more talented. Imagine doing jujitsu every day for two or three years and just getting tapped nearly every time. And like that as a young man for me was like, it was too much for me to handle. And I, I'm not saying that like, uh, oh, woe is me or whatever. And like, it, like, if that's the worst thing that happens to me in my life, then I have a pretty damn good life. But it was also just really fucking hard to deal with. I just didn't know what to do. I was like, I, I don't feel like I can be successful in this. And I didn't, have the mental grit or toughness to push myself through it at that point.
0: Yeah, or maybe even like like-minded or, or like a crew around. And so after that, you 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 dedicate yourself, you get into more strength condition, right? And so you've packed yeah. on weight, obviously, right? And <laughs> obviously you've gotten older too, you've yeah. matured. But like, when did you start, so you started training in high school, um, or excuse me, uh, when did you start training, weight training? I should ask that.
1: Yeah. Um, actually no it's funny is around the same time I quit wrestling I started getting really into fitness and maybe that was like this a subconscious shift where I was like you know what fuck this I don't want to be undersized or I don't want to be um, overpowered or whatever and like I said before I'm not a huge guy I'm like a 170 soaking wet sometimes but like the um the training, like my, my training, my dedication to physical training actually started after wrestling ended. And, um, I was always, I was always like interested in like getting fitter, getting stronger. I, I don't think I had it in me from a willpower standpoint when I was in a freshman or sophomore year in high school. Um, but then something changed for me, man. I also got got to uh, the opportunity to become an ocean lifeguard and I wanted my body to withstand any sort of rigors that it was going to have to be put through. And sometimes it's a very chill job and you get to like lay, not lay in the sun, but you get to be in the sun all day and like things are going on and it's really cool to be out there and you have this really cool uh, opportunity to be an ocean lifeguard. But then other days you're going to be like, it's the ocean's going to test your fucking metal, man. You better be ready. So uh, I always wanted to be
0: ready. So when you were trying to get ready and you were doing, I mean, I think it's a really interesting thing because like people think, especially when you look at you on social media or whatever, like you're dedicated, you've been training hard. You have been training hard for a really long time, but it's not always that way. There's something that there's sometimes like a thing that kind of like creates this change. And then Mm -hmm. once you start creating this change, then you just need to stay consistent with it for a long period of time. Like you and I, We've both been working out consistently for a long time, but it wasn't always that way. It wasn't like you're born training hard, you know, yeah. it's something that you have to find for yourself and you got to find the reason why you want to do it. And yeah and talking about the lifeguarding, like you, like back then, and especially for people who want to get into like, kind of like this lifeguard shape, I guess you would say, was it just a lot of calisthenics, <laughs> a lot of body weight stuff, a lot of sprint work? Is that really what it was?
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my training really consisted of, um, so first of all, I was, I was a avid waterman. Like I I really loved being in the water. Uh, and that was ever since I was very young, I really enjoyed being in the ocean and, um, had a lot of opportunities to be in throughout my youth. And then I was a talented ocean swimmer. Um, I could handle myself on a surfboard and body surf and do all these things. So, I came into lifeguarding with a little bit of like a leg up in terms of just understanding how I interacted with the ocean and having a respect for it in a way that I think um, served me well as an ocean lifeguard. Um, But then, you know, leading into guarding, I was, at that time in my life, I was running a lot. I ran like a lot of local five and 10 Ks. I actually won my town's 10 K for my age group. Did you really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. At one point I was running just a ton. I just enjoyed it. I would go out and pound the pavement and like run hard or do sprints or like go out for a three or four mile run. Um, did you ever go longer than 10 K or is that your, that was your spot? I've run longer than 10 K, uh, and just kind of going out for a run. Like I think I ran 13 miles one time was like the longest I've run at one yeah, point. A half
0: marathon, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then um, I've never done anything longer than that. But mostly when I got onto the beach, um, a lot of soft sand training, lots of sprints, lots of longer runs in the soft sand. I, I was like kind of known for doing that. I don't know why, I just like, liked the feeling of just being hot and sweaty and being in the soft sand. Lots of pull-ups, lots of push-ups. And then I also had a gym membership, which one of my uncles bought for me, which was like, my uncles were like huge into fitness. And he bought me a gym membership and was like, you need to pack on some weight, like go lift some fucking weights. So I was going to the gym like three times a week, either in the morning or in the evening as well. Dude, I just think about you, like, remember that movie with The Rock, um, Zac Efron? <laughs> Baywatch. I just, I just look at you like
0: Zac Efron on the beach, just crushing it. Um, so I want to get back to the ocean because I am curious about this. Yeah. Assuming is my own knowledge. Um, sure. I was in um, Laguna Beach, California, and I felt the water kind of pulling me in different ways. And I have my kids and um, I want to expose them to the ocean. So, I'll, but I, yeah. I only take like one at a time and whatever, but I could feel there was like a toe and whatever. And the lifeguard, sure enough, the lifeguard, I'm like, man, man, something doesn't feel right. Sure enough, the guy's like, hey man, I need you to move over there like 30 feet. Yeah. And it was just pulling us back out. So what are some of the dangers in the ocean? Like aside from, okay, when you go and you look at a, you know, six foot swell. Okay, I got it. That's a big, that's a big wave or 10 foot wave or whatever it is. Understood. But there's other things you don't just necessarily see, like how they break, how they pull back in. So like, I guess as like a guy who doesn't have that much knowledge about the ocean, what's like a, like a (laughs) basic framework. And I know that's a big question.
1: Um, No, it's a, it's an interesting question. You know, I haven't lifeguarded for a a long time, but I still, um, I still go into the ocean as much as I can. Um, I actually I'm trying to plan another trip down to see our buddy Aaron Hoff down in Hawaii at some point. Um, No, here's the deal, man. I think number one is everybody needs to ultimately respect the ocean. You have to respect the ocean at all times. And you just humble yourself to it because it is way more powerful than you will ever be anybody out there. Nobody is more powerful than the ocean. And to think that you are, a better swimmer, you have better lungs, you've got more power is a, like the most kind of outlandish thing you can ever think. You have to have some humility, right? So you have to also know your skills in relation to the ocean and that level of respect that you have to the ocean. Like So typically when I was going on rescues or we had rescues, it was, it was a lot of times people who just underestimated the power of the ocean or overestimated their skills in the water. It wasn't a lot of, and there were some one-off occasions, it wasn't a lot of people who were like really great ocean swimmers who had high respect for the ocean that we were rescuing. That wasn't right, the right, case. Right, right, right. It was more so just people either were ignorant to the fact that shit is going wrong and going wrong fast, or just didn't care and didn't respect the fact that they could be in some serious trouble. So number the number one thing, let's just start at the basics, is like just look at the ocean. And if it looks angry, it probably is angry like that. Yeah. That's like the number one thing. if, If you look at it and it is just barreling hard and like the white water smashing in and the water's all churned up and it looks like it's treachery and chaos, it's treachery and chaos. You should probably not go in unless you, like I said before, have high levels of skills and the lifeguards are saying it's okay and all that kind of stuff. On calm days when it's nice and chill and placid and it looks like a lake, more than likely, it's probably pretty safe to go on in and not be as, quote unquote, quote unquote, worried that shit's going to go haywire really quickly. But things can change fast in the ocean. You know, a swell can roll in. The tide can go out. Um, You could have, you know, wind blow in certain weather or whatever starts to happen or like rip currents can start to kind of form as the swell picks up. So you got to stay mindful that even on like really chill days, it can turn kind of fast. The, The days that were the most treacherous days were the days when it was like really beautiful and sunny out, but for some reason the ocean was just hectic and crazy. And those days are the days that are tough to be a lifeguard because you have all these patrons who come to the beach who want to go into the water and it might look super fun because it's just pumping like that. You're looking at waves that are coming on and you're like, oh, I want to go in and I want to go body surf that wave. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. No, you probably don't actually want to do that. But, um, you know, when you're looking at the, the water, like I said, if it looks treacherous, it probably is treacherous. There's also some stuff that you can watch out for in like the formation of rip currents typically what you're looking for for rip currents and this is kind of the classic example is that the water is all kind of churned up or like brownish, or you see foam that's moving in certain directions. And that typically will denote that there's a rip current there and rip currents are formed when there's like depressions in the ocean floor and water rushes into that depression. And then like rushes out fast, the other direction. So in a rip current, you're, you can, you kind of sometimes feel like you're getting pulled side to side, but actually it's more than likely pulling you out. It's, it's, it's typically going to move you further away from shore. And we had chatted about this at one time, but the best thing that you can do, if you're in a rip current and you can keep your head above water is just kind of let it take you. And especially if somebody is coming to get you, you don't want to try to swim against it because when you fatigue or you panic and you're swimming against it, your efforts are all in vain and you're just going to tire yourself out. So if, if your head's above water and you can tread water and you feel like you're getting pulled out, you kind of just go with it. The other kind of rule of thumb is that if you are in a position where you're able to swim parallel to shore, because it's pulling you straight out, you can swim across the rip current and get out of it a little bit faster. But if you're swimming directly against it, yeah, I Not like that that, that,
0: that that concept if the ocean looks angry does junk go in it
1: I think that's a really good <laughs> I mean
0: because you know because you get excited right I get excited I'm like seeing these waves and it's like nah man I think I'm in over my head you know I went I went you you brought up Aaron Hoff I went I went um uh, surfing with Aaron yeah. in Kauai one time and I was surfing a few times and whatever and I remember he pulls me out and speaking of like your rip current like you take the channel out right yeah, so I am on platform. my I'm on my board and the channel takes me out and then you kind of come back around and you're ready to hit like a lineup. Right. And I'm out there and I'm sitting on my board and I'm like, dude, this is really big. I've never been on the other side of the wave where like they're cresting and you're watching them kind of crest from, from the ocean side. Right. Uh, Yeah. And uh, this guy, this Hawaiian guy just looks at me. He's like, Hey man, like just move up like 10 feet, just follow me. And dude, instantly this giant wave just would have taken me, but it's just, they could see it and I couldn't. And, and it was, it became overwhelming. I—I and and I remember telling the group. I told Aaron, I was like, "Hey, man, I'm I'm really in over my head right now, and I need to get I need to get to shore because <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is too much." But,
1: anyways, Aaron, I want to talk, yeah. Aaron has a—he's uh, got a little bit of a history of taking people a little bit to to the deep end, a little oh, too quickly. But he's yeah, got the best heart, and he's got the most skills in the water, man. What a what a fantastic waterman he is. He's oh, the best. for,
0: for sure. But the, the trail run's coming up, by the way.
1: Oh, cool. Really quickly before we move on, there is something that like the scariest moments that can ever happen when you're in, at least for me, when you're in the water is the scenario that you were just in, whether you're with or without a board where you're past the point of where the water is breaking, but something happens where it puts you between the shore and the breaking wave and you're too far out to either stand or get in safely And now you're in the break zone. So there's been like two or three times in my life when I've been really, really in really, really bad situations that I either found myself in because I wasn't paying attention or the way the waves were breaking just changed. Like there's a set that rolls in that's breaking way further out than the rest of the waves are breaking right now. And you have to stay calm in those situations i know that that sounds so cheesy but like if you're in that water where you're just looking at a fucking wall of white water rushing at you and you're treading water it's not fun that you're going to have to duck under breathe come on up look at the white water coming at you again duck under breathe come on up that's really the worst scenarios that i've ever found myself in is that that white water wash that is really hard to stay afloat in because it's mostly air and you have no way of standing your feet onto the ground or swimming in you're too far out. And it's, uh, you got to just weather the storm. So
0: you got have to weather. So instead of trying to turn your body and swim back towards the ocean and try and body surf this whitewash, you depends on get how get tumbled. Well, it depends on how far
1: you are out. That's, that's a really good way to handle it. If, uh, you're near enough to shore where you think that you can let the water take you and you can pull your head on up and just let it take you again and take you and take you and take you sometimes you're in a position where you're kind of in no man's land. And the best thing that you can do is try to ride out this set and go under, come back up, go under, come back up. Um, yeah, being in that situation is is really tricky and hopefully, you know, you don't find yourself there. Uh, and if you do, hopefully there's a lifeguard on the way because it can be really, really bad, really bad. So speaking of lifeguards, you, you've had quite a few,
0: like, um, how many different like quote unquote leaders over the eight summers? Because I mean, lot. it's not like you're there full time. You're, you're at school, you're doing your thing. Then during the summer for like, let's just say three, four months, whatever it is, you then you're, you're then an ocean lifeguard Then yeah. you come back around. So during that time, you had probably quite a few leaders. I'm curious what kind of takeaways you had from a leadership perspective. Because we're, we're equating this idea of like ocean lifeguarding to, to coaching and being engaged. And I get that. Plus yeah. we're just talking about a bunch of fun stuff, but I'm curious from <laughs> a, from a takeaway from a leadership perspective. Um, what type of things can you learn from someone in that position? Because it's, it is kind of a, there's no kind of about it. it's a life and death role and there's a lot of responsibility on line.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I learned a lot about leadership through, um, both being a younger guard. So like I said, I was a guard for eight summers and there's, um, there's some kind of military labeled structure into how we thought about rank in lifeguarding. So you were a rookie and then you were a staff guard. And then there was a promotion to senior guard, which meant that you ran your own single small chair. It was like a little mini beach. And then you got promoted to uh, lieutenant. And then there was senior lieutenant and then captain. And I, I made it to senior lieutenant um, over my eight years. I was promoted to lieutenant after my fourth year, which was as quick as you could get there, um, which was a cool accomplishment. I was stoked about that. But here's the deal, man. It it all depended on the team that you were working with and who was your lieutenant. So when you're a younger guard and you show up to a beach and either the team is kind of disjointed or like you have some people on the team who are knuckleheads or whatever. First of all, if the team dynamic is off, like your week that week is probably going to be pretty miserable because it's just you're just kind of counting the minutes until you get your next crew. So it really it was a huge deal to be sitting with people who all were on the same team. We're like, Hey, listen, we're going to jive together. We're going to be here for the week. Like, let's make the most out of it. Let's have some fun. Let's work every out. week. Let's you help. guys rotated or how did that work? Yeah. We, we rotated uh, weekly. So you had uh, a new beach, a new staff um, and a new assignment. Uh, but that also meant that you were with a new Lieutenant every week. And, you know, as a younger guard, the thing that I noticed, first of all, you're so impressionable as a younger individual, younger guard that I took a lot of my cues. I I sat with uh, this legendary guy. His name was Elias. And Elias was just like, Elias Elias Gomez. Uh, Yeah, dude, this guy was so jacked, so tan, (laughs) such a hard worker. He would wear his straw hat and his sweatpants and just run. He would just run all day long. Dude was just nonstop. And I sat with him a lot when I was a rookie and like, I just was inspired by how much this guy would work out. I was, I wanted to, I always tried to work out as much as I could with him. And then as I grew in my leadership role, I made sure that my team worked out every single day. There's a mandatory workout that you have to do in the morning, but you also had opportunities to work out as much as you wanted, if you, if you wanted to. So like I, a lot of times I worked out on my, all my off hours do like different stuff but you do learn a lot from the people that you sit with and like you know you come on in you're working with somebody like Elias and you're going to work out and you're going to get motivated by him and then there's some people who fucking hated working with Elias because they didn't want to do anything you know they were just lazy didn't want to work there were some lieutenants that you could go to their beach and they'd be like ah you know what work out if you want to you don't have to and they were chill too maybe like a little bit more like um surfer kind of mindset like Hey, go out, take the board out, surf, whatever. But then you work with some people who are just straight, not fit to be in the role. And those kinds of people, it was a nightmare because you work with somebody who doesn't know how to handle pressure when pressure hits. Uh, everybody, the whole team is is on edge. And uh, both unfortunately and fortunately, because I do look at it like a blessing that I, I worked with people who couldn't handle the pressure. They would get really... Scared really quickly when shit started to go off. And as a younger guard, you're looking to your leader for like inspiration and leadership and guidance. And this person, for lack of a better term, is shitting their pants. Right. And you're like, what do we do now? Do we rescue that person or not rescue that person? And that really showed me that poise under pressure and being a leader or being a person who. When things start to go wrong, you have to rise above and you have to be there to lead your team. You have to be the person who calls the shots. You have to be the person who sets the tone. Um, and it was inspiring to work with people who were able to do that in some really hairy scenarios. Dude, yeah.
0: And so like, I hear you are like you're in what college and then yeah. that's before you. So then when you get out of college,
1: then how many years after college, you go back to law school? I took one year off. Um, after college, I worked on my applications a little bit more. And then I um, applied to law school after one taking one year off. So I lifeguarded all the way through college, I lifeguarded during that year off. And then I lifeguarded my first summer in law school as well. And so looking back on like some of those leadership things, I mean,
0: I'm sure like, yeah, the working out part, it just is obviously instilled in you. But there's other things mm-hmm. too, right? Because like, you have a team now, right at NC fit, you manage people, and so I imagine, like, did those skill sets? It's funny how, like, those skill sets, like, what fifteen years, whatever it was, and they probably oh, still yeah. paid. They probably still pay dividends today if you're
1: actually paying attention back then. Oh, f- for sure, man. I, I mean, I look back on the people that I work with at some of the people who I work with who were really inspiring. They're legendary figures in my mind. It really is. It's, it's kind of crazy. And then some of the people who I work with who I didn't enjoy the time or like were really. Poor leaders under pressure, in particular, you go, wow! I understand what it's like to to work with somebody who is out of control. You know the um, I'm rereading right now or uh, going back through uh, dichotomy of leadership, hmm. and yeah. um, that's yeah. Le- Le- Jocko yeah. and Leaf Babin. And you know yeah. one of the things that they talk about in that book is just like how you have to as a leader have this balancing act of both like the ability, and if we're talking about lifeguarding, the ability to have fun and, and be light and be loose, but also to really be stern and serious and, and Hey, we got to go right now and balancing those two things is an art and the best leaders create that balance and know how to be light and have fun and chill when it's, when it's able, but also know how to turn it up and get serious and let's go and save these people right now. Um, well, I think you, you,
0: you said something I just want to highlight. Like you say that
1: like back in the day,
0: some of these guys are like legendary to you, right? Legends. And probably to Legends. other people, they're like, oh, dude, I don't even know who that guy is. Or, oh yeah, I used to see him running down this beach with his straw hat and his sweatpants that got all sweaty. But to you, they're legendary because they made such a big impact. And it, and it really puts the onus back on us, you know, as leaders in our organization or whoever's listening and they're their own leaders in their life, right? Like, I mean, is that you can, you, you can make a dramatic impact on someone who can remember you as like, hey man, that dude was that dude was legend and he really helped to improve me or it could be the complete opposite. It's, it's funny how people could, how you have the ability to make that impact right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, This is really interesting that we came around to this topic because this came up in a podcast that I was listening to where John Danaher was talking to Joe Rogan. So John Danaher was on Rogan's podcast way back in the day. And I went back and re-listened to some of that, but he mentioned he's a big believer in this fact that, you can change somebody's life in three seconds. Like you could have the most minimal interaction possible with somebody and they can change your life completely, both for the better and for the worse. The Danaher example was he he was rolling at Henzo Gracie Jiu-Jitsu or teaching at Henzo Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. For context, Danaher
0: is one of the best jujitsu coaches in the yeah, world
1: right now. Okay. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Yeah. So Danaher is this legendary jujitsu coach. He's like creating the most talented team in the world right now. But anyway, so he's back in the day, back in the nineties at this renowned academy in New York. And they bring in this guy, Dean Lister, who Dean is another really legendary figure in grappling and jujitsu. But Dean was somebody who was using leg locks when nobody else was using leg locks. This technique that a lot of people were looking at as being a last resort technique. Dean was- really revolutionizing jujitsu or tapping people out all the time. Right. And after Dean gave his lesson at Henzo Gracie, Danaher went up to him and said, Hey, I really appreciated what you taught today. Can you just tell me why you're focusing on this? Because not a lot of other people are. And Dean Lister goes, why would you ignore 50% of the human body when you're trying to attack this person? And that was the only thing, like the conversation didn't go past that. That was the only interaction they had, but he was, and it has, it's changed Danaher's life completely and how he thinks about jujitsu and all these other things. You have the ability to impact somebody in the smallest amount of time for infinite amounts of time. It's crazy.
0: That's a a really good example. And then obviously there's, there's ones where you could impact them in a negative way in a possibly, negative or, way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can I mean, say that, something that could really impact someone.
1: That's the, I mean, you know, if we're thinking about the business that we're in, Jay, you know, as people who are leaders, quote unquote leaders in this coaching world, you know, your, your words and my words, if we are watching a coach for the first time and they know that we're there and they're excited that we're there and they come off the floor and the first thing that we say to them is something like, Hey, your class today wasn't so hot. That person, you could have, we could have, not you, we, you could have ruined that whole person's coaching career in three words. Yeah, they could I, have been an excellent coach. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The words, and we, I think we might've done a web, uh, an episode about this. About yeah, your, but your words, words matter. Having, cool. Your words having weight, for sure.
0: Playing into that, my sister, I think, could have been incredible at um, softball. I really do. Yeah. And she was playing softball at an early age. She, I asked her, I said, why don't you keep playing softball in high school? She said, I was in seventh grade and um i don't know, i threw the ball and she had been playing for many years and mm-hmm. she was doing fine and she maybe it was in whatever it was and she throws the ball and the, the the coach says something like oh you know angela couldn't hit the side of a building or something like that like something like kind of like very like snarky Crazy. and that she never showed back up to softball again and you know obviously there's there's many layers to that right and we could as parents find ways to ask questions and overcome, but it's just crazy to think that those words had such a big impact because what would have led to the next step? Now you can also look at the positive, maybe by her paying softball, who knows? It just, it, it it has a lot of weight to your point. And yeah, so
1: yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. This is a super interesting discussion for me because I, sometimes I try to think back and remember things that I've either experienced, and sometimes I kind of think like my mind, there's something wrong with my mind because like my memories for some reason, like I I can't really recall things in like great detail. And like, yeah, if I think really deeply about them, I can, but there are things that stick out in my mind, like as clear as day. And and they're they're on the positive side and they're also on the negative side. And some of these things go back to when I was like a very little kid, like you, the stuff that gets in. That We're so impressionable as human beings and the stuff that we feel or the words that are put on us, it's kind of funny how some of them stick around forever, forever. I'm sure your sister, she, she brought that up to you, but I'm sure she's had moments in her life where she's thought about that many times between being seven or seventh grade or whatever it is. And right now that's wild. It is wild. And it just makes you, you
0: know, appreciate the fact that just be careful what you say and how you say it. And it can make a big impact. And um, you know, so do we need to do a part two because I could dive into the history of MDV for a long time and, and, and talk uh, about this idea of like, you know, getting to humanize who we are. You know, I think a lot of people they see, um, whether they're a part of NC Fit or outside, um, but there's a whole human side. Like I'll give you an example. You uh you finish college, you take a year off to go to law school. When did you decide to be a um, part-time or not even part-time. When did you, you're, you were a Spanish instructor. Oh, you, yeah. know, you know what blows my mind, dude? We were, in, we were in, I don't know where we were at, but dude, <laughs> I've never heard you speak Spanish in my entire, maybe once in my life because yeah. you refused to speak it, but yet you, you taught it in high school. So when did that part come in? Because I think that, that's fascinating too. Oh yeah.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, this is a really, I don't know how interesting it is for anybody else, but it's interesting for me because it was one of those things that I never thought that I was going to be teaching uh, high school, let alone teaching Spanish in a high school, right? So I I was a Spanish minor in college, but I went and lived in Spain my junior year. So I had a really um, nice operational um, understanding of Spanish. Like I could speak it uh, fairly well, but I understood it much better. And I was like kind of a nerd when I spoke Spanish because I had studied it in American schools for so long that when I went to a native speaking country, I'm speaking like a textbook. So I was like, a hundred percent, I was like a narc. They look at yeah. you and they're like, are you are you a cop? Or are you yeah. like an American? Like, Me, Yamo, MDV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was very like mechanical <laughs> yeah. and everything was very grammatical. Right. <clears throat> but anyway, like I said, I took a year off from lo- um, between college and law school and my old high school, the high school that I went to, I went to an all guys Catholic prep school and uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, going to, to that school, by the way. Um, they called me up for some reason, like my resume had floated along somebody's desk and they were like, hey, listen, they just ran this Spanish teacher, this brand new Spanish teacher out of town with pitchforks. And we need somebody in here who can keep these kids under control. Essentially, they were like, you went here, you understand what the mindset of these kids is. Can, do you have enough <laughs> operational capacity to teach Spanish? And I was like, Hell yeah, I do. Let's go. So I showed up and I taught Spanish for a year. Dude, I love that, man. Did you ever him on
0: any kids? Did any, were any kids like, because I was that guy for Had sure who was, Had who was doing anything in my power to like, you know, not, I was trying to get by with the minimal amount of work possible, whatever. But well, yeah. did, you, did you ever throw like a pencil at anybody?
1: <laughs> no, I was. So the really interesting part was I was 21 coaching, uh, excuse me, coaching, teaching. High school, freshman, and sophomore, but yeah, interacting like 15, 16 years with old, juniors and seniors in high school as well. So, I'm like three or four years removed from where these kids are at. And, um, you know, so first of all, I it was one of the first times that I grew my beard out. First of all, I had to grow my beard out because I didn't want to be mistaken for a student walking. Oh, around bro, you
0: hallways. would have told me, dude, even if right <laughs> now
1: you shave, you look like you're like very young, anyway. So, I grew the beard out. But then, for the first couple of weeks, because this class hey, they had literally drove the teacher out of the school based on how badly they were behaving, and yeah. they're not like bad kids in so far that they're like violence or anything like that. It was not like that, but they're very smart. They were super sarcastic. They definitely had like a little bit of that like uh, holier than now kind of attitude. So I didn't smile for the first two weeks, like. I was all business for the first two weeks and just made sure that we set the tone. And then after that, I balanced it out a little bit more with like a lot of sarcasm and like uh, it was a lot of fun, man. Teaching was a blast. Dude. I think that's so cool. You know, it's so funny. We've been talking for almost the
0: hour now and there's like, there's so much to unpack and um, you know, because you have different life experiences, you go from different sports to lifeguarding to you know, law school and teaching Spanish and then getting in and working with Reebok and different companies. And, they, yeah. and we need to talk more about that because through all these different experiences, mine too, right. They help shape the way you view things and they help shape the way we're doing it. And right now, you know, you're leading a team that's doing some amazing work. And I can't wait for more and more people to see it uh, with all of our, you know, our new app and, and our whole like kind of branding philosophy of where we're going with effort over everything. And this podcast kind of shifting to, and I even said this in the intro Mm -hmm. is this idea of like, for a while, you know, we were doing business of fitness, but I felt like I had to be really pigeonholed and just talking about business of fitness. And I feel like if I spoke about anything outside of that, it was kind of like, um, not giving the viewership what they kind of like came to experience. Right. (laughs) And, and now by rebranding, we could talk about the business of fitness. We could talk about our brick and mortar gyms or whatever, but we could also open that up to different subjects with people in this fitness space or without. So I'm I'm fired up to have, you know,
1: (laughs) these conversations because they, they, they're exciting for me. Well, I appreciate that. And um, I like talking about this kind of stuff. I think it's super interesting. Everybody's everybody has a story. Everybody has a perspective and there's so much really good stuff that we can all take away and learn from one another. And You know, going back to business and fitness, I felt really honored to be able to be on that show for so many episodes. But you said this yourself. At some point, also, you get to the you get to the end of a road where you might have said everything that you want to say on a subject, and that's okay too. To say, "Hey, listen, I'm going to close this chapter right now, and we're going to pivot the conversations to be a little bit more open ended about whether it's life or business or fitness or training or ocean life or whatever." just having great conversations and pulling the things out of them that are meaningful for you and the listeners. I'm, I'm really excited for you. I think it's going to be great.
0: Yeah, me too, man. Well, Hey, I, uh, I appreciate you talking about life in general and, um, yeah, I mean, we'll have to do uh, MDV
1: part two here pretty soon. Oh, we didn't, I didn't tell the story of the time that I saved the, the topless woman and her family. We, uh, maybe next time we'll talk. <laughs> the topless woman and her family. Yeah, we got a – that was actually um, – we, we got a commendation.
0: That. Yeah, I, I want to save <laughs> that for part two for the <laughs> topless woman in her family, but at a high level, you got an accommodation, huh?
1: Yeah, we no, we got a commendation from the county. This was a really bad rescue. It was uh, She was in some serious trouble. She lost her swimsuit, and uh, we had to be very sensitive about also bringing her in because her husband had – uh, taken on a lot of water and he was unconscious when we brought him in. So it's, it's a kind of funny story because everybody at, turned out okay in the end, but, uh, and it's got a funny title, but it was really serious when it went down. But anyway, maybe maybe yeah, we're next, starting that
0: next next episode, we're starting off with the, the family you guys <laughs> saved and the accommodations you got. Yeah. Um, well, brother, thanks
1: again. And, uh, you know, people, you have your, your podcast, uh the intro the intro yep with mvv yep. check out the intro every tuesday new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts and uh hope you guys enjoy yeah or check you out at uh, uh MDV MD- underscore f-i-t on instagram love let's it Go. all right let's go